Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about Pesach and uh, all sorts of things. And just while people are still uh, showing up, there, there's a, a thought that I got from, um, from my friend Yitzchak in, in, in Buenos Aires that, that I want to share with, with you guys. Um, it was off of last, uh, last week's talk. Uh, where we talked about this epic journey from the creation of human beings to the uh, resurrection of the dead, to Techias Amesim. If you didn't have a chance to listen to that one, I, I recommend it. And also, after, uh, after our talk last week, I added on a little section at the end that better explained the end. So that's the last 17 minutes of that talk. If you want to check that out, you can go on Torah on iTunes, T-O-R-A-H, on iTunes.com, and you'll see the talk uh, listed there. So, so anyway, what, what, uh, what, what he pointed out was something uh, that I thought was very fascinating, which is a comparison to secular culture and to the Torah point of view in terms of the resurrection of the dead. And what I mean by that is that if you look in secular culture, the resurrection of the dead usually goes by one word. You ready? You ready? You can probably guess it. It's zombies. Like zombies come back and they're all evil. Zombies. Have you ever met a good zombie? That, that's the question. They're all, they're all really bad and, and they want to eat your flesh and consume you. So, so the, the question was, why is it in secular society do we see that that when the dead come back, they're evil. And yet, from the Torah point of view, the, the resurrection of the dead is a, um, a continuation of the development and the evolution of the world toward perfection. And so when we come back, we're actually these idealized human beings, you know, um, beyond sort of like the, the, the old needs of our, of our physicality. We're incredibly refined. So that's a that's a very dramatic contrast. So when he pointed that out to me, I was like, "Wow, that's that's super cool." I got to think about that. So I just want to share with you what my conclusion was, and 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 uh, anyway, well, we can go on from there. But but the the idea is like this. You see, for the most part, um, the 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 quote unquote rational mind or modern mind or secular mind or scientific mind uh, there are a lot of different um, a lot of different synonyms that that describe the sort of the quote unquote enlightened mind I'm, I'm talking about enlightened um, you know in the 17 1800s definition of that word which is that if you can't see something with your eyes then it's superstition in other words. Um, the world works on a one plus one equals two basis, and that if you start to think beyond that box, then you're not living in reality. That 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 was the that was the sensibility that was uh, that that was defined as uh, intelligence itself. Okay, but but what's so fascinating is that the, the Torah never took that point of view. By the way, and what's so great is that modern science um, and math has also rejected that point of view. And, and I'll give you a few simple examples. Um, Louis Pasteur, 
who, who came up with the whole idea of pasteurization. Now everything is pasteurized, meaning to say that we boil milk, for instance, to make sure that any harmful microbes or bacteria that could cause death are eliminated from it. And so the, the French people of, of the day would, in, in, in the town of Louis Pasteur would say, ha, 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 you mean there's something in that milk I can't see? How ridiculous. <laughs> so, so we see that there are many, there are worlds upon worlds upon worlds that exist that we can't see with our eye on the, on, on the, on the small level. And yet, if you turn to um, the, the realm of physics uh, and quantum physics and, and advanced math, you'll see that whole dimensions are postulated that we can see with our eye. So, so in other words, this is no longer a, a religious point of view that there is more to the world that our eye can see. This is now basically just, just conventional wisdom at this point. Okay, so, so the reason why I'm bringing that up relating to zombies is because the idea that there's life after death is still considered that realm where we're not certain, where, where a lot of these sort of like, um, sort of rationalists will insist that you have this life, and that's all you have, and there's nothing after this life, and therefore, death is the ultimate evil. Death equals, e- death equals evil, because death is that thing which stops life. And life is all we have. So therefore, I think with that understanding, the whole zombie portrayal of these evil creatures that rise from the dead makes sense. Because in other words, once they died, this is the zombie template, once they died, they hit this wall where there's nothing else. And then they rise from the ground as the culmination of death itself, which is the culmination of all that is evil. And so, therefore, that's why I think there's such a sharp contrast between rising from the dead in secular culture and in Torah culture. Because from the Torah point of view, it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. In other words, at at our most um, basic level, all of us, are immortal. And, and what I mean by that is, of course, at a certain point, we shed our bodies. That, that, that's for sure. But that the true essence of what a person is, meaning your soul, your soul goes on uninhibited. And it actually is able to take, take part in greater, quantumly higher levels of light and revelation of godliness. And so it's, it's a very, very positive thing, right? Um, having said that, having said that, the, 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 the Torah point of view, you, you might then sort of like reason, and this would be incorrect, so I, I want to make sure that you understand this. You might, you might reason that since the next world is so awesome and is so elevated, right, then that therefore this world isn't good. So that's not the, that's not the case at all. We highly, highly, highly value this world, and we highly value our time inside of a body, because the idea is that once a soul leaves the body, it can't gain ever higher escalations because it can't do mitzvahs. So, so in other words, it's sort of like um, 
the construct of the soul and the body in this world is kind of like a rocket ship being fueled. And you're fueled with all the mitzvahs that you do. And then at the end of 120, you blast off. And the more fuel that you have, the more mitzvahs that you've done in, the, in your lifetime, the higher, 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 higher you go. But that fueling process just takes place in this world. So, so this, is, this is like, this is an essential time. Um, you know, the, the, famously, the, uh, one of the classic, classic stories about the Vilna Gon um, is, is that at the, the last, last moments, last days, certainly, of his life, they say that he held his tzitzis and he started crying. And they, they asked him why. And he said, these tzitzis, meaning this practical mitzvah that I can do while I still have a body, these tzitzis, which just cost a few pennies, like I'm not going to have access to all of this once I leave my body. This opportunity to serve God in these unique ways. You know, um, it says uh, that when a person wants to speak Lashon Hara, wants to say something negative, something against the Torah, right? If a person stops themselves, like they, they, they desire to say something nasty about some, someone or, or whatever it is, if they're about to say it and then ah, they stop themselves, they assert that amazing free will, that amazing self-control. It says, angels gasp in envy. Angels gasp in envy. So I'm just, I'm just sharing that with you because I want you to realize that, that while there's greater revelations in the next world, there are greater opportunities to serve God in this world. That's the, that's the amazing thing. Um, uh, someone I knew uh, once said something that's been staying with me ever since. He says, in, in the next world, you're going to get the answers to all of your questions, but you're not going to be able to do anything about it. In this world, we don't have the answers to all of our questions, but we can do something about it. That, that's, that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing. Um, okay, well, I, I, I want to get to the, the Pesach Seder, and, um, and I want to share with you just a few uh, holy things to have in mind, just maybe that will make the, the Seder even, even more beautiful and, um, and, and, and special. And so these are just a, a few of my favorite uh, Seder thoughts and, and, and kavanas, holy things to have in mind. We need the matzah, for instance. Why don't, we just, why don't we just start with that? So there's a gematria from the Jikover Rebbe, and, and Reb Shlomo uh, Karlbach described the, the Jikover Rebbe. He said he was a supercomputer before the age of computers. Okay, I always like that description. I believe he was the, the grandson of the Ropschitzer Rebbe, um, who was one of the, the, top, uh, the top men of, uh, with the, the Chos of Lublin, the Seer of Lublin. Okay, so, so the Ropschitzer Rebbe uh, pointed out something very, very interesting. You know, one of the, 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 the famous questions um, in the Torah is, when, when, when God takes us out of Egypt, there are different dates of exactly how long we were in, in this exile called Egypt. Um, and the, 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 the classic number that we're given is 400. It was 400 years. Um, but then later on, the Torah says 
that God took us out of Egypt after 210 years. So the rabbis explain, um, if you look at Rashi there, uh, Rashi says, well, actually, the 400 is counting from the birth of Yitzchak. And since, um, since that's really the beginning of, of, of this exile, and, and you can look at Rashi for all the details, and it actually works out perfectly that um, it's exactly 400 years. In fact, Yitzchak is born on the 15th of Nisan, on Pesach day. And according to this way of learning, the reason why Pesach is Pesach, in other words, the reason why we leave Egypt on the day that we do, the, the 15th day of the month of Nisan, is because it's Yitzchak's Avinu's birthday, Isaac's birthday. That, that, it's, a, it's a different sort of, sort of surprising way of looking at uh, Pesach. Anyway, that's, that's the 400-year model. Um, but then we have this 210-year model, and it's sort of like, well, well, well what's that? So, so the, the, uh, the answer is that we say that we were in hard labor in Egypt itself for 210 years. Okay, so, so that makes sense. So the 400-year uh, count makes sense, the 210-year count makes sense, and, and everything is good. Um, so, so people still have questions, and we still want to reconcile them. And, and the Jikova Rebbe, here's his gematria. Here's his amazing gematria. You know, there are different, there are different forms of gematria. You can just take, spell matzah. Um, if you want to add it up, it starts with a mem, and you can say that's 40. But then there are deeper forms of gematria where you actually spell out each of the whole letters. Like mem, if you wanted to spell out the word mem, um, it would be mem yud mem. Okay, so, so, so mem could just be the letter or it could be the word for the letter. So if you spell out the word for the letter, then all of a sudden mem isn't um, the number 40, which is a simple letter, but it's the spelling of the letter. It's mem yud mem, so that would be 90. Okay, so if you spell out the word matzah using the word for each of the letters, it comes up to the number 190. Now now listen to this. This is, this is awesome. So... <laughs> So the Torah says in one place that we were in Egypt 210 years. The Torah says in another place that we were in Egypt for 400 years. And we're supposed to eat matzah on Pesach. Well, 210 plus matzah, 190, equals 400. It's perfect. It's perfect. So, so now I want to get to the, the deeper part, the, the kavana. So... So you see that matzah is filling in anything that was missing. In other words, if God said that we were supposed to be in Egypt for 400 years and we get out after 210 years, see, one of the, th- one of the thoughts is, is, that, is that we couldn't take it any longer. God just had to take us out then and there. So really, it was supposed to be 400 years in Egypt, in hard labor, but God takes us out after 210 years. And the matzah, the 190, makes up for any labor that we still needed to do. So now, here's the special part. I'm adding this, but honestly, I think this is what the Jikover Rebbe just meant. You know, like the big rabbis, they, they just tell you the thought and they trust that you're going to figure it out. <laughs> and then you feel like very special, like, oh, I got a great idea on this. But really, it's what they were just trying to say at the outset. So, 
So I'm pretty sure this is probably what the Jacoba Rebbe was saying, but I'm just going to spell it out in my own words. When you eat the matzah, have in mind that if there's any aspect of work in your life, any pain or suffering, any Egypt, any, you know, enslavement that you still haven't paid off, let the eating of the matzah, the 190, add to the 210 and get you to 400 and get you out. See, eating matzah is, is, is just one of the holiest things that we do while we're in a body during this lifetime in this world. And um, I really recommend, if, 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 if you can do it, you close your eyes when you're eating the matzah, and there's so many holy things that you can think about. And we'll get to some more later, but, but just for starters, you can just be thinking while you're chewing the matzah that this is making up if there's any any suffering, any any hard labor that hasn't been accounted for in my life, let this eating of the matzah right now make me yotze, make me make my make my balance just leveled out, right? You know, balance to zero. Okay. Let's move on to the next thought, and I want to discuss freedom in general, also, but. I want to tell you something beautiful from Reb Shlomo. He points out a famous question, but he gives a beautiful answer, right? Like only Reb Shlomo could give. Here's the question. You know, if there's one, besides God, right? If there's one standout personality of the Jews being taken out of Egypt, everyone knows the answer to that. It's Moshe. It's Moses. So how come Moses isn't mentioned in the Haggadah? Right? There's a mention of him all the way in the end in the songs, but in the Haggadah itself, you don't, you, you don't see Moshe mentioned. So it's a bit of a mystery. Why? So Reb Shlomo says that there's two kinds of teachers that we have in our life, right? We say Moshe Rabbeinu, which means Moshe, our teacher. There's the Moshe teacher. This is the person who teaches us, you know, like information, Torah, things like this. But then there's another type of teacher in our life, and those are our parents. And you know, when you have the Pesach Seder, you don't go to the school, you don't go to the classroom, and your Rebbe or your teacher or whatever doesn't sit at the head of the table and lead the Seder. It's your mother and your father who are leading the Seder. Because there's another type of teacher. There's a type of teacher who tells you all the information that you need, and then there are your parents who are teaching you like the most intuitive, intuitive, deepest, deepest level of belief. Right? That's what you're getting. That's what you're getting from your mother. That's what you're getting from your father. And so that's why Moshe isn't mentioned in the, in the Haggadah, according to this way of learning. Because this is really, really the moment between parents and children, and that type of teaching. Okay. I want to tell you something else. We mentioned it the other day, but it's, uh, it's very, very strong. It's very strong. So as Reb Shlomo would say, and it's his thought, it's always good to hear again. So we're drinking four cups of wine, 
So what are you thinking about when you're drinking the four cups of wine? So, so you know, classically, they, they, they stand for our four holy mothers, right? Um, but Reb Shlomo says something about wine in general that I'd like to apply, just because I can't get this thought out of my head. It's so, it's so beautiful. He says, everybody loves a finished product. Everybody loves you when you're a grape, and everybody loves you when you're wine. He says, but do you know what a grape has to go through to become wine? How much it has to be stepped on and crushed? He says, who loves you when you're in between? He says, those are your real friends. And I just want to add to that, um, you know, the Seder is about leaving Egypt, and the Zohar says that the future redemption is based on the model of leaving Egypt. So, so really, we're talking about all redemptions right now at the Seder table. It's not just a historical event. In fact, Rav Soloveitchik says that the, the first part of the Seder, before the meal, is really just talking about leaving Egypt. But the, the second part of the Seder, we're already talking about Mashiach coming, and um, and and it's even deeper than that because um, it's almost like we're celebrating an event that hasn't even happened yet. We're already thanking God for having already brought the Mashiach, even though we haven't experienced the Mashiach yet. So, you know, it, it's such a testimony of faith. It's not if it's it's when, and if it's already when, then I'm already happy right now. <laughs> You know, Reb Shlomo used to say when he when he'd married couples, not not all the time, but I heard him say it. He said, "Listen, it got it took one couple to get us into this mess. So who's to say it won't take one couple to get us out? And as long as it's going to be a couple, why shouldn't it be the two of you? So it's going to be one generation. It's going to be one generation that experiences all the promises. So why shouldn't it be us?" Why shouldn't it be us? Who loves the world when it's still in between? Those are Hashem's real friends, right? And at the Seder, we have this awesome privilege to already celebrate, already celebrate the completion of creation right now and to thank God for it. That's the whole second part of the Seder. Um, okay. Uh, I'll give you one more uh one more Seder thought, and then let's just talk about what freedom is in general, because we're, we're celebrating freedom on Pesach. So, so one of my favorite thoughts is, is Yachatz. Yachatz is, you've got three matzahs, right? Which, which, you know, we said the four cups of wine stand for the four holy mothers. The three matzahs stand for the three holy fathers, right? Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And we take we take the middle matzah, and and we break it in half, and then we hide the bigger part, and that becomes the afikomen, which stands for the korban pesach that we're going to bring again in times of Mashiach, and then our children find it and they bring it back to us. That's kind of like the whole seder in an overview. But let's let's get deeper. Let's talk about on a deeper level what's going on. So I want to say like this, I, I, this is my thought, I want to explain it like this. Yachatz, we're holding up the whole matzah. You know, before God created the world, there was only oneness, 
right? Because it's one whole matzah. There was only oneness. Only Hashem existed. And then what Hashem did was He gave us the Torah, right? The first the first word of the Torah, Breshis, right? Out of beginnings. Begins with the letter Beis, which is the number two. Right? We break the the matzah into two. And now we have the illusion of duality. Right? It never stopped being only God. The world has never stopped being only God. But now it looks like there's this world and the next world. There's good and evil. There's male and female. There's the revealed Torah and the hidden Torah. And of course, there's free choice. I can do this or I can do that. Right? Now this is what the world looks like. There's brokenness. Now you want to hear something so intense? Which side of the matzah do we hide? And the answer is we hide the bigger piece. You know why we hide the bigger piece? Because the larger aspect of the light of Hashem is hidden in this world. See? In this world, God is more hidden than He is revealed. Right? When you know the secret that there's no such thing as nature and you get to the point where you can see God in absolutely everything, this isn't so much of an issue. But for now, on the most simple level, the greater portion of revelation in this world is hidden. So we take the bigger piece of matzah and we hide it away. Now, Rabbi Shlomo says in the name of the Koshnitzer Rebbe, something so beautiful. He says, do you know who finds that and brings it back to us? Our children. Right? Like, think about how many generations there have been. Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and our Holy Mother started the whole process, right? And now, the last generations, we're looking, 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 and we're actually going to return the greater part. And that becomes that becomes the Korban Pesach. That becomes the Afikomen, which we eat instead of the, the Korban Pesach. That becomes the fulfillment of everything. So, so you see it acted out. You see from before the world was created, when there was just oneness, to the restoration of the hiddenness of God and the restoration of the Korban Pesach and the third base of Migdash at the end of the, at the end of the Seder. The whole thing is acted out right in front of our eyes if we have the eyes to see what's going on. Unbelievable, right? Okay. So now let's, uh, let's make a segue here. Let's talk about a little bit more what is freedom itself because we're, we're celebrating freedom, right? We want to be free. Everybody wants to be free. You know, uh, America, there, I, I think maybe it's Rhode Island. I don't know. But I, I just remember always seeing something as a kid on, on license plates. You know, there are all these different license plates for different states in the United States, and they have different pictures and things like that. And I remember as a kid just being so fascinated by all the different ones. You know, it's like I used to collect them with my eyeballs, you know. And, and they all say something different. And, and the one for Rhode Island, I think it was Rhode Island, always, uh, always sent a chill through my spine when I read it. 
it said, live free or die, right? I, I, I always found that like, wow, that's intense. You know what I mean? Like New Jersey is the garden state. New York is the empire state. That's what it says on the license plate. And then you see live free or die. And you're like, whoa, like, what's that about? So, you know, it's very much rooted in our, um, in our consciousness, this idea of freedom. And it's, um, it's something that we really have to understand because freedom is, is a little bit complicated. It's actually ultimately very, very beautiful, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit complicated. The reason why I say it's complicated, because if you ask just the average person on the street, what does it mean to be free? They'll give you an answer, something like this. I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And, and if I can do that, then I'm free. So, so freedom is ultimate. True freedom is ultimate mobility. Anywhere where I want, you know. I remember my, my dad used to talk about money um, in this way. He would say, money is mobility. That, that, that's how he wanted, how he raised us to think about money. In other words, it's not, it shouldn't be a thing in itself, but it's a, it's a, it's a vehicle for, for other things. It's, it's money equals mobility. You know, you can have more freedom. That's the point. That's, that's the point. But um, someone forms their own business in America. Why did you form your own business? Because I don't want to work for anyone else. Right? That's, that's kind of the idea. Again, it's, or, or uh, again, within the American ethos, anyway. Um, one of the highest compliments when they write a, a profile of like a business leader or, or something like that, He's a self-made man, right? All these things are, are, are very much lodged in our consciousness as like, that's right, and that's what I strive for, and everything like that. But the question is, is that real? Is that real? Is it true? And I want to tell you one of, I think, the, 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 the deepest midrashim, my mind always goes back to it, because I think it's almost like the antidote to, to this type of thinking. You know, if you look in the Torah, in the beginning of the Torah, Hashem asked Adam to name all the animals. And on a very, very deep level, remember, this is before Adam ate from the tree of knowledge. So there was, the world was still pure, like totally crystalline, just absolutely pure. Um, and that Adam could actually read the letters that God combined to make all of the things in creation. So, so Adam didn't creatively come up with names like, oh, that's blue. Let's call it a blue jay. It, it wasn't so much that. It was that he was able to read the letters that Hashem used to combine and create these things, and that's what their name was. You know, intense, a, a very beautiful, deeper way of understanding what, what went on there. But 
There's a final chapter to that story that's not in the Chumash, but the Medrash says it. At the end of this whole process of naming the animals, Hashem says to Adam, the first person, He says, and what is my name? God asks Adam, what is my name? And Adam says, Adoni, meaning my master. And there there was no shame in this. It was just an acknowledgement of the reality of existence. Because the reality of existence is we can't lift a finger without the help of God. So now all of a sudden, you have to ask yourself, well, what is freedom then? You know, one of the deepest things I ever heard in my life, Reb Shlomo said it in the name of the Beis Yaakov, the second Ishbitzer Rebbe, who said, Deep, 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 deep down, deep, 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 deep down, every person thinks that they created themselves. It's an awesome thought because we know that it's not rational. All of us know that we have a mother and a father. And yet somehow our brains are hardwired to think that we created ourselves and that therefore we're not responsible to anyone but ourselves. And anyone who tries to tamper with that self-made reality is trying to take away our freedom. But we didn't make ourselves. God made the world. God made us. God keeps the world going every single nanosecond And God keeps us going every single nanosecond. But God gives us the option to decide whether or not we want to live our lives like that or not. That's what's so incredible. You know, God created the world with 10 utterances. Um, And there were 10 plagues and there are 10 commandments. And the Chidush Arim makes a very wonderful narrative of those three tens. He says, first God spoke the world into creation with ten utterances. Then the world fell into idol worship. And so God brought ten plagues to systematically destroy every aspect of idol worship so that the world understood that there was only one power, And then God gave us the Ten Commandments, which is the Torah, which is the revelation of what God wants from us specifically in this world. And so with that in mind, we realize something awesome. What is freedom? Freedom is the opportunity, the ability to connect with God in an uninhibited way. That there, are no, that there are no more obstacles to serving God. Reb Tzadok Hakon says that there are three primary obstacles that face a person in life. One is the Yetzirah, that's the, that's the internal struggle that a person has 
where there's like confusion and lack of clarity or resistance or laziness or all sorts of desires and things like that, that that's, that's one obstacle. That's inside of us, right? Then there's one that's outside of us. Um, that's, that's, that's on a governmental level. You know, um, historically, outside forces have tried to keep us from doing the mitzvahs, from trying to serve God. And then the, the, the ultimate obstacle there is, is death, actually. These are the three primary categories of obstacles. Ultimate freedom, ultimate freedom is the ability to be in this most organic relationship with God without anything blocking us. Let me put it in another way, okay? The ability to do the mitzvahs, the ability to serve God, is the ultimate freedom. Now, I want to give you a very... um, contemporary point of view on that, which is a very cynical point of view on that, because we need to discuss it and it needs to be, um, be, be, be addressed. You know, because people might say, well, you know, that's just George Orwell stuff that you're talking about right now. You know, you know, like this freedom is work or freedom is labor. That's like a, this, like this Nazi concept, right? Like, like freedom means I don't have to do any work. Now you're telling me work is freedom. Mitzvahs are freedom. So, so I think for the, the modern mind, for the, for the average mind, it's, it, it's actually a fair question. But if we just stop the Torah conversation at this point and just say, yes, that's what the Torah says, you know, just do it. All right. Like, like, don't just don't be annoying that, that that's what it is. Just do it. I don't think we're doing justice to what the Torah is saying yet, because there's a giant part two to all of this. And this giant part two is actually the whole point. And until you get to this place, you haven't really grasped what what we're talking about yet. You see, the ultimate reality, the, the, the real truth, the real truth is that all that exists is God. So this whole idea of us and them, that there's God and then there's me, and now you're asking me to do stuff, right? I don't know if I want to do stuff. Now you're telling me a guy to do stuff or whatever. Uh, I don't know. But that whole way of thinking is is actually very inorganic because all that exists is God. Who are we? We're just a, 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 a soul enclosed in a body. And what's our soul? Our soul is just an emanation of God. So, so all, all there is is God. Now, now we say this in Shema. Why, why is Shema like so much like the, the headquarters of all of Jewish thinking? Because Shema is, hear, 
Israel, meaning understand, like really get this idea. Hashem Elokeinu, right? Um, Elokeinu means nature, right? In, in this way of thinking. That, that nature itself, this, all this stuff that you see with your eyes that you think is real. Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. This Elokeinu is really Hashem. It's really Yud Kei It's all, all, all that you see with your eyes is actually just an, an emanation of the infinite. And all of it, when you put it all together, it's Echad. It's one which means that I am not I am not separate from God. I'm an emanation of God because everything is one. Now it's the next word in the Torah after Echad that's the treasure chest. Okay, you ready? Are you ready? What is the word after everything is one? In the Torah, that's the question, because that's going to tell us everything. That's the part two I was referring to. And you should love. It all becomes about love. It's that this relationship that I'm in is a giant love affair. I'm in this ultimate love affair with God. Now, I always like to point out, because I, I think everyone has to understand how far this goes, okay? The Rambam, Maimonides, who's sort of famed as being the ultimate rationalist in Judaism, Maimonides, this very person says, a person has to walk around lovesick over God. Lovesick! To look at every single person and to see them as another aspect, another emanation, another ray of light of Hashem. Why was Reb Shlomo hugging every single person he met? And every person, by the way, even like Arab prisoners, literally. There are stories, there are people who tell you stories about going into Arab prisons and hugging Arab prisoners. Why? Because this lifetime is a giant love affair. And of course, Echad is Gematria Ava, which is love. Once you understand that this oneness is an expression of love, then all of a sudden, all the mitzvahs are just ways of loving. The root of the word mitzvah, Tzav, means to connect. And of course, that, that just runs the gamut, right? Connection, like you're listening to someone, wow, we're really connecting to marital intimacy, right? Which, which brings life into the world, more life, more love, right? Like, it's, it's just expressions of oneness. Love is expressions of oneness. When you listen to someone, you become one with them, right? And when, 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 when you see someone is listening to you, what do you feel? Love. Wow, love, yeah. 
He gets me. He understands me. I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this world. He's listening. She's listening, right? This is freedom. So, so let's just step out freedom. Let's just sum it up in a, in, in a sentence or so. Freedom is recognizing what the actual reality is. Not that I'm an independent creature who created myself. That's another form of enslavement. And by the way, you know, to quote Bob Dylan, you got to serve someone, right? The irony is, is that if I reject God, then I think, ah, oh, I'm finally free. And then you know what you're doing? You're trapped within yourself and you're just serving your own neurosis. You think you became free? You became a slave to yourself. If I've got to serve someone, I'd rather serve God than myself. Believe me. There's better than me out there. And then as long as I'm serving, then I don't want to stop short of serving the ultimate one, the one who made everything. As long as I'm serving, why should I stop short from going to the top? So step one is just recognizing the reality that all there is is God. And then step two is to be in this love relationship. God, you mean I get? I just woke up. I get to say modani. I get to wash my hands now. I get to put on talis and tefillin right now. I get. I get to eat and thank you for eating before and after. I I get to know people. I get to talk to other creatures that you made like me with souls who talk. I'm so lucky. I get to look at the sky. So, I was talking with my son, and uh, he likes to read business books. He he told me this, and it was so funny, because as you'll see, it's he didn't realize that we were talking about it over Shabbos, but he was saying a, a Devar Torah from the Parsha. But um, I'll tell you. So he read in a book, I, I tried to get the, the author from him, but uh, I wasn't able to. So he says, most people, most people have the following model. You start with inspiration, then you go to motivation, and that leads you to action, okay? Inspiration goes to motivation, goes to action. This is how most people think. But the true reality is that action leads to inspiration, which leads to motivation. Say it again. Action leads to inspiration, which leads to motivation. And I want to show you where that is in the Parsha. And it's a kind of a, a cool, cool thing. It's in, it's in the Rashi in the beginning of uh, Parsha's Tzav, right in the beginning of the Parsha. 
Um, it says that on the Mizbeach, on the altar, where we brought all the offerings, all the korbonas, all the sacrifices, it says that, uh, that, that, it, that it should be an ish tamid, which means a fire that doesn't go out, that the, on the altar there should be this fire that doesn't go out. Now, ish tamid, right, this eternal fire, is used in one other place in the Torah, which is actually the more well-known place in the Torah, which is on the menorah. The menorah had a, one, of the, one of the candles never ever went out. That's the, the fire that never stopped burning. And of course, in shuls, you'll see that there's, we, we commemorate this, there's like a little tiny lamp, sometimes it'll flicker in shuls above the ark. And even if you turn out all the lights in the shul, you'll see that one has like its separate little power source, and it's always going. So we try to keep that idea alive. Anyway, so, so if you look in the Rashi, you see something fascinating, which is that how did that Ishtamid in the menorah, that eternal fire in the menorah, get lit? And the answer is, they took the Ishtamid from the Mizbeach, from the altar, and they used that to light the Ishtamid on the menorah. So the eternal fire on the menorah, which stands for inspiration, because the menorah is the symbol of wisdom and inspiration, where did that get lit from? From the altar, which symbolizes action. Because people would travel from all over to get to Jerusalem, which was a lot of work, and to give a korban, which sometimes was like an ox, which is like a lot of money, or sheep, or, or birds, whatever you could afford, and you would bring it there, and that took a lot of action. So you see, from action, which was the offering on the altar, comes inspiration, which was the fire on the menorah. And that, of course, leads to motivation, because then you want to do it. So action leads to inspiration. In other words, if you want to accomplish something, and this point is made beautifully in this book that I, I, I really recommend, it's called The War of Art. You know, a lot of us have extra time on our hands right now, and, and this book is, is, is a great motivator. And, and one of his premises is that, you know, people just kind of wait around for this great idea or they wait around for inspiration in order to do something. He goes, no, the difference between amateurs and professionals are professionals, whether they have an idea or they don't have an idea, they sit in their chair and they don't get out of their chair. And as a reward for not getting out of their chair, even if it takes hours and hours and hours and hours, an idea comes. So from action comes inspiration. And then once you're inspired, you're motivated to do it. So, so, so Pesach and this whole quarantine that the world is going through, you know, Rabbi Shlomo would say all of the time, he would say, why are you making God so small? Why are you making God so small? And so interesting because God is the, 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 the ultimate unav, right? The most, like, who has more humility than God? Like, when someone makes a masterpiece, like a painting, in the corner they sign their name. How could it be that there's a Grand Canyon and you don't see, like, signed in the corner, like, Yudke Vavke? How, how, is, how is that possible that you have, like, these 
breathtaking things. Like you look up and you see a shooting stars. Like like you know when you when you go to a place where you can actually see the stars in the sky. It's so magnificent. How is it possible that God doesn't sign his name in the corner? It's awesome. It's awesome how God is. How humble God is. And yet, one of the consequences, one of the very unfortunate consequences of God being so humble is that sometimes we just dismiss him and we just say, well, he's not even running the world, right? Because where is he, right? Meanwhile, he's running everything. And then comes like a moment like the coronavirus, right? Where all of a sudden, the whole world shuts down. It doesn't just shut down. People aren't leaving their houses. And everyone all of a sudden is going, holy smokes. God can do anything. Just like we've always been saying, in the blink of an eye, Kaharafayan, in the blink of an eye, salvation can come. And you know, the original Pesach Seder, everyone's pointing this out, we were all just quarantined in our homes. And here we are, right? On the eve of Pesach, on the eve of being taken out of Egypt, on the eve of celebrating all of the redemptions, all the future redemptions, here we are quarantined in our homes with the world shut down and the whole world recognizing God on a level that they haven't in who knows how long. Maybe thousands of years, possibly. Possibly. Maybe. I want to tell you um, one more level to what we were just discussing about that Ishtamid, that fire on the Mizbeach, on the altar. We actually read it in the daily Korbonos. It says that, that this fire, Lo Tichbeh, that's the Hebrew. That means that God is telling us this fire, this which is meant to keep on burning, lo means no, tichbeh means extinguished. It should not be extinguished. But I heard from my friend Jeff in the name of the, the Maggid of Mezrich something awesome. When it says lo tichbeh, don't extinguish it, or lo means no, the no extinguish, I guess, would be the literal translation. The Maggid of Mesrich read it differently. He said that, that you know what you should extinguish? All the no's. <laughs> all the lows. All the I can'ts. All the I can'ts in my life. That's what needs to be extinguished. Lo tikbeh. Extinguish the lows. Extinguish the no's. Extinguish all these false barriers. To our understanding of our lives, of this world, of our of God, of our relationship with God, of what we're capable of, of what this world is. I learned something so awesome this week. It was a shot from Rabbi Gamliel uh, on the on the Gemara. It's in uh, Masechta Shabbos, page thirty. If you want to look it up, it's a way out. It's a way out teaching. It's a way out, way out teaching, but maybe maybe we'll just finish up with this idea. It says when Mashiach comes, 
And I saw two English translations for this word, but, but they're both way out. You know, either, either way you learn it. When Mashiach comes, that the ground is going to sprout, like, you know, wheat, when wheat grows up, when, it, when it, it's going to sprout rolls of bread. And then I saw another translation of it. It didn't mean rolls of bread, it means pastries. Actually, pastries are going to spring from the ground. And I saw that there were two interpretations of this. One is not literal, which means that, okay, what Robin Gamliel is saying is that at the end of days, basically um, any barriers to parnosa, to livelihood, um, are going to be eliminated. And that's what it means, that, that rolls of bread are going to sprout from the ground. We're not going to be uh, hungry. But it's actually the literal trans, the, the, the literal meaning of this that I think is actually more compelling. And now I'm going to tell you um, the pshat, the explanation from the Beis Halevi. So um, if you're not familiar with him, one of the, the greatest uh, Torah dynasties of genius um, and piety in, the, in, in Jewish history is the, the Soloveitchik family and the, also known as the, the Brisk dynasty. And the progenitor of that whole line was the Beis Halevi. He was the, the first one, okay? And he understands this literally, this idea of rolls coming out of the ground. And listen to how he explains it, because it's, 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 when you hear his logic, it's, 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 it's quite amazing. Um, you see, when, when God created the world, it was from a single point of matter and God expanded it and expanded it and expanded it, which if that sounds like the Big Bang Theory, it is the Big Bang Theory, thousands of years before science understood it. And at a certain point, God said this divine name, Shaddai, we'll say Shakai from now on, but it means enough. God stopped the physical expansion of the universe. Okay? Now, if you think of the universe as a, as a sphere or as a circle, right? It's very interesting because the gematria of this divine name is 314. If you put in a decimal point, it's 3.14, which is pi, which is the circumference of a circle. So that's a, a very... Cool, cool little aside. Anyway, God stopped the physical expansion of the universe with this name by saying enough. Now what the Beis Halevi says is something very, very profound. He says God didn't just stop the physical expansion of the universe when God said enough. What God also did was he limited the amount of of divine revelation in the world. Right? Do you remember earlier we were talking about by Yachatz, starts off with one matzah, the middle matzah, and then we split it in half, and then we take the larger piece of matzah and we hide it to show that the larger aspect of the revelation of God is hidden in this world. Okay? So when God stop the expansion of the universe, it wasn't just on a quantitative level, it was on a qualitative level as well. In other words, 
he left room in terms of the revelation of his light for us to reveal. God made us partners with him to finish off creation, to finish the revelation of God's oneness in this world. Okay, now how does this relate to rolls, loaves of bread growing out of the ground? Okay. So he says the following. He says, you know, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with stalks of wheat. Like, you know, I'm sure we've seen pictures of them like blowing in the, in the breeze and things like that. They're pretty tall. Okay. And if you, if you think about it, they grow up, they get, you know, several feet tall. But the point of this stalk of wheat hasn't been revealed yet. It's actually a kernel at the top. And that kernel at the top gets ground down and made into flour, which eventually gets made into bread. And then it stops. You get the kernel, and then soon after it stops. But what if God releases the ceiling on that? Just like God said, Shakai, and said enough to the divine aspect of revelation in the world. What if God hits this start button again and continues to expand it? Then the further elevation or development or evolution of the world takes place. And that thing, which was just a stalk, which was nothingness, which then became a kernel, then will continue on to its ultimate end, which is processed, realized bread. So when you think of it in that way, it's, 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 it's an amazing thought that the pause button, so to speak, on creation was hit at a certain point, but God, so to speak, is going to hit play again. And then the rest of the nature and the fabric of the universe is going to become complete. And what we're going to see in the world is completion even on the level of our food needs, right? Even on the level of the, of the trajectory of what a stalk of wheat produces. The, the world is heading in that place. And I heard from Rabbi Kesson He said that there's a Midrash that a year before we left Egypt, we stopped speaking Lashon Hara against each other, meaning bad speech, things that we shouldn't say. And by the way, just a, a, a general kind of like note, in, in case you don't know it, some people um, get confused. They say, um, let's say you, you call someone, I don't know, Something insulting, right? But maybe they really are that thing, right? Like, let's say this person's 900 pounds and you go, that person's, you know, enormous. Well, okay, you could make an argument that maybe that's accurate. But that's Lashon Hara. In other words, people 
tend to think that I can say anything that's um, demeaning, but if I can defend it and I can really argue the truth of whatever my statement is, then it's not Lashon Hara. So what I want to do is I want to correct that notion. It is Lashon Hara. The Torah forbids it. You can't, you, you, you can't cut people down with words. You're not allowed to. You know, Reb Shlomo used to have a phrase that I, I, I loved it. He would say, why are you cutting that person's wings off? So, so we stop saying Lashon Hara about, about each other. And, and I just want to finish with this. We know God created the world with speech. Isn't it interesting, almost on a Mita Kineged Mita level, just a direct one-to-one correlation level, isn't it interesting that before we left Egypt, we rectified our speech? In other words, if God is bringing a new aspect of reality, a new aspect of creation into the world, which he brought into the world with speech, if we rectify our speech, it really makes sense that we become vessels for this new era of creation. And I just want to tell you how real this is. See, it says God created and destroyed many worlds before he created this world. If I say to you, let's say you have no problem with this particular person, whatever it is, and then I say to you, that person's a really bad guy. Now, by the way, there are certain instances where you're allowed to say that. If there's someone who is a known thief or something like that, and you see that that person is um, trying to create a business relationship with someone that you know, there are, there are ways that you can communicate to your friend that this person is unreliable. You have to talk to a rabbi how exactly to say it. But um, we're not naive. Judaism is not naive. If someone is a notorious womanizer, say, or something like that, and his motives are, you know, very, very suspect, and you see that he's flirting or talking to a woman who's like an, you know, who's a serious woman, you're allowed to, you're allowed to say something. But again, you have to be very, very careful and you have to ask a rabbi, like, what to say exactly. So I I just want to say that because, you know, um, Judaism is nothing but endlessly realistic, even as it encompasses the most exalted, far-out ideas. That's what's so awesome about Judaism. Every single level is being addressed all the time. Okay, but let's get to the thought. So imagine this person, I just don't like him, just because I just don't like him. There's nothing wrong with the guy, I just don't like him. And then I want to get you not to like him also. So now, all of a sudden... When you look at this person, before you didn't see anything, but now you see someone to walk around, someone to avoid. It's a different world right now. Before you lived in a world where this person was not an issue. Now all of a sudden you live in a a new world, a new world where where this person is an issue. What I'm trying to say is, is that we also create worlds with our speech for each other. 
I, when I spoke against that person, this innocent person to you, I, with my words, created a new world that you live in now. You now live in a world where you don't want anything to do with that person. It's a different world you live in right now. What I'm trying to show you is that with our words, we too create worlds. But now let's talk about it on a positive level. What if, what if we find out that all that exists is God and God loves us to pieces and we get to be in a relationship with him and God is already loving us back? You know, love can be scary because he said, well, I don't know, I'm afraid to love this person. They're not going to love me back. But God 100% loves you back. You can't go wrong with this one. You say, well, if he's loving me back, I don't know if I want that kind of love because (laughs) look at my life. Okay, that that, that gets into more advanced levels. But let's just, just for now, just say that God is loving you back 10,000%. Loving you to pieces, right? Now what kind of world do you live in? Now I tell you, you know what? You're so capable. You can get this done. You can do it. You're talented. You're special. You're great. Now what kind of world do you live in? It's a new world. So when we say that God made us partners in creation, think about how deep that is. It's so deep. It's so deep. We, we can say positive things about God. We can say positive things about each other. We can say positive things about ourselves, to ourselves. And then we're creating worlds. So let's join forces with God. Let's really be free. Let's really be free. Let's really understand who we are, who God is, what this world is, what... It's just a playground for the most divine, awesome love relationship. And when we get to that place, we're truly free. Let's extinguish all the no's, right? Let's create worlds of positivity for each other, worlds of freedom. Let's eat the matzah in the most beautiful way. I'm going to tell you something from Rabbi Wolfson, something awesome. I told you that when we're eating the matzah, right, that we're filling in that's the 190, which is adding the, to the 210, which is getting us to the 400. Any balance due, we're canceling it out. We, we, we're getting to the 400 number. We're there. Okay? Um, you know, we eat birthday cake on our birthdays, but that wasn't God's idea. That's our idea. There's nothing wrong with it. But, but... But it's God's idea that we should eat matzah on Pesach. That really is God's idea. It's like the perfect thing to eat. Like, have you ever wondered, am I eating the perfect thing right now? If you're eating matzah Pesach night, you are literally eating the perfect thing right now. Like, how often can we do that with total clarity? And listen to this. We'll just end on this thought. There's seven brachas, seven blessings that we say before eating the matzah. And that parallels the seven, the Sheva Brachas, the seven blessings that we say under the Chuppah when we get married. Because that Matzah is an invitation to the ultimate freedom, which is the ultimate love affair with God. 
Let's experience this Pesach. Let's experience it right now. Let's experience it going forward in our lives. And let's all, all be privileged of being able to attach ourselves with to God in that most awesome way. And may the whole world, may the whole world see the oneness of God. Have a fantastic Pesach. A fantastic, fantastic Pesach. Um, okay. Uh, if anyone wants to ask any questions, I see I, I see there's a, a couple of things in the, the chat here. Um, uh, so, okay. Um, is there is there anyone actually who who wants to ask anything? Uh, you can hit your a raise hand thing or something. I don't know. Uh, unmute. Okay, I see an unmute flashing. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.